All right, let's bow our heads and we'll pray before we look into this story from God's Word. Lord, there is an amazing promise we've already digested here this morning that the doors to the kingdom of God are open to everyone. And I just pray that that would fall on us with a fresh kind of force today and motivate us to be ambassadors of that kingdom. That you have thrown out your arms open wide and you are adopting people from every tribe, every tongue, every country, every language, every skin color under heaven. And this news is good news. This is amazing news. And I pray that we would be the ones who carry it with fresh vision today, no matter what comes. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, here we are in the second week, and we're talking about the second missionary journey of Paul it took place in the 50s, at eight, not the 1950s, all right? The 50s, first century, the 50s. And what we're relying on to tell this grand, grand story of the spread of Christianity that explodes out of Christianity all over the Roman Empire is the book of Acts. To rely on that, you really should ask the question, can you trust that book? Now, some of you will not maybe even ask that question. Others of you are maybe a little bit more skeptical of Christianity. And you come to this idea, kind of like a lot of liberal, critical scholars, that kind of the Bible is guilty until proven innocent. In other words, it's probably lying unless we could establish that it has some veracity, unless we could establish that it's telling the truth. So there was a guy, a guy named uh, Sir William Ramsey, who was an archaeologist back when that science was really, really young. That's a brand new science, by the way. They didn't have archaeology, you know, back when they were making the relics in the first place. So, so archaeology is the study of those relics. And here's Sir uh, William Ramsey. He's a scholar around the 1850s. He lived a really long time. He lived into the 1930s. And he accepted the common critical view. And the common critical view was that Acts was far too neat a picture of Paul's followers and Peter's followers just getting along, and it was a big old love fest in the early church in Acts. That's the way they looked at it, and they said, that's too convenient. That's too neat. It had to have been written later as a polemic, as a forged document to try to get feuding Christians in the second century to get along. That's probably what it was. But if it was written in the second century, of course, it couldn't have been written by Luke. That means it wasn't written by eyewitnesses, and therefore it was essentially a fake. This guy accepted that view. In fact, he writes about it in his book uh, on his studies uh, in the ancient Near East. He said, I had read a good deal of modern criticism about the book, that's the book of Acts, and dutifully accepted the current opinion that it was written during the second half of the second century by an author who wished to influence the minds of people in his own time by a highly wrought and imaginative description of the early church. His object, that is the object of the of the forger, the, the writer of the book of Acts, was not to present a trustworthy picture of facts in the period of about 50 AD, but rather to produce a certain effect in his own time by setting forth a carefully colored account of events and persons of that older period. He wrote for his contemporaries, not for truth. He's saying, that was my opinion. Then he went about digging, because that's what archaeologists do, right? I mean, they dig. That's kind of their, their stock and trade, is they dig. They dig in ancient sites and they dig up artifacts ancient documents, and they figure out what happened a long, long time ago. So when he did this, what do you think happened? After rich on-site investigation, Ramsey finally writes, this present writer, he's talking about himself, takes the view now that Luke's history is unsurpassed in respect to his trustworthiness. At this point, we are describing what reasons and arguments changed the mind of one who began under the impression that the history was wholly untrustworthy. 
So and then he goes about and talks about what changes mind. What changes mind? Well, for, the, for instance, Luke, who's like a historian physician who writes the book, it's, it's volume two of his Luke-Acts set, he references all sorts of things that could be corroborated outside the Bible. So, for example, 32 countries are listed in the book of Acts, 54 cities, nine Mediterranean islands, all of them corroborated by archaeology. In addition, he alludes to, that is, Acts alludes to 95 different people, 27 of whom, 27 of whom are non-Christians, mostly Roman governors, leaders, and that sort of thing. 20 of those are referenced outside the Bible, and we didn't know that until Diggs dug up uh, inscriptions and ancient documents and the like. This is kind of a fabulous confirmation when you think about it. I mean, it's unbelievable. It blew him away such that he would later say, the officials with whom Paul and his companions brought into contact are those who would be there. Every person is found just where he ought to be, proconsuls in senatorial provinces, Asiarchs in Ephesus, Stratagoi in Philippi, Polytarchs in Thessalonica, magicians and soothsayers everywhere. What's he saying? He's saying that the writer of Acts lists these governors by certain names. They had titles. So uh, the writer of Luke Acts has this uh, habit of identifying local leaders, leaders of cities, leaders of uh, provinces. And he uses specific titles. Now you say, well, what's the big deal? Well, what we found through archaeology is that these titles were very specific to the time and the place, and they changed constantly. So if you were going to invent this 100 years after the fact, you're going to be in big trouble because you wouldn't possibly be able to keep up with the names of the governors and the leaders and the times that they change. For example, uh, Sergius Paulus was a guy we met last week in the first missionary journey. Remember, they took the message of Jesus. They went by boat to the island of Cyprus, and the leader of that island was named Sergius Paulus. And he is called, in the book of Acts, a proconsul. Was Sergius call, uh, Paulus a proconsul? Yes, as it turns out. That's the exact right word. But guess what? 68 years earlier than that, the exact same position in the exact same administrative district was called a propraetor. <laughs> yeah, the Romans love the fancy words. And so how would you have gotten that correct writing 100 years later? Well, you say easy, just Google it. No Google in the second century, all right? No Google in the second century. This is an amazing thing. So then what accounts for the uncanny accuracy? There's only one thing. And that is, it was written during the lifetime of still living eyewitnesses, among them the author himself, who, as we'll see, puts himself into the story. This story written by an eyewitness. So this is a fantastic, amazing thing. We find other details that were strange and unusual and caused people to question it until confirmed by outside study. So, for example, he lists in chapter 8, verse 30, that ancient readers read out loud. And you think, well, that's weird. Did they read out loud? Yes, as it turns out, they did. Would it take two days to sail from this city? This is Churros. We're going to find out about that in a minute. Would it take two days to sail from here to here? But then Luke mentions that it took five days to travel back from here to Troas again. And you say, well, that's weird. Maybe that's an error. Like, why? He's just throwing in random numbers. It took us two days. No. As it turns out, from nautical references outside the Bible, we find that prevailing winds in that strait are incredibly prevalent and would make your journey very fast in one direction and more than double the time in the other. I mean, it's just little things like this, friends, that made it very obvious to scholars in a post-critical um, period 
then Luke was telling the truth. And so you can trust it. That's kind of the main take. We say, so what, Rick? I mean, so what? Well, you have good reasons to believe this happened, that it was written in the middle of the first century by still living eyewitnesses. Now, does Luke have a theological purpose to talk about the coming together of the, of the Jews and the Gentiles to, uh, to talk about uh, the, the message of Jesus? Yes, and their message being that Gentiles are equal members of the people of God. And that is our subject today, that Gentile outsiders are equal members of the kingdom of God. So back to our story. When we left our heroes last week, they had gone through this area. This is called Galatia. And in this province, they had talked about Jesus. And when they had talked about him and the free grace of God that justifies a person and makes them right with a holy God and eliminates the specter of condemnation that hangs over the head of every lost sinner, people responded. They started coming into the kingdom. They started becoming Christians. And so they went back to Antioch, and they're thrilled about that. And the people in Antioch are thrilled about that. And that is a special church. Why is that a special church? Because I said last week that Antioch is the first church where they mash together Jews and Gentiles. It's a big, growing church. In Jerusalem, you had all Jews, pretty much, in that church. Here, you're throwing together Jews and Gentiles. And how is that going to work? Just imagine it for a second. Let's say you guys are the Jews. These two sections here, Jews. You're sitting in a church. You're part of this church, right? Now, you guys are all former uh, pagans, idolaters. You're Gentiles. You're outsiders to the covenant, outsiders to Moses, okay? That's you guys. You're part of this church, too, it looks like. So you guys and you guys are now together, and how are you going to get along? I mean, look at you guys. I mean, you look like legalists to me. So you, you're, you're all about Moses, man. You're all about the covenant. You're all about the, the, uh, the festivals. You're all about the ceremonial law. You're all about the food requirements. This is your life, okay? And now, and now you're in the same room as these guys, pagans, idolaters, fornicators, Immoral people, worshipers of idols. Well, that's what you used to be. That's what you used to be, right? But you've come in with this background. You've come in with this past. And imagine trying to get along. Imagine trying to eat at the same table. These guys won't even eat pork. No bacon for these guys, okay? So, so imagine trying... <laughs> yeah, <laughs> some, of you, some of you might want to switch sides for that reason. So... so uh, this is an enormous spectacle on planet Earth. And it's happening right here in Antioch. And it's created a stir, a buzz. The news gets down to these guys down here. This is a church made up of Jesus followers. Do they believe Jesus is the Messiah? Yes, they do. But they're Jewish in background. And they start to wonder that, that but what's going on there is right. How can that be right? Because as they read the law, they realize that God accepts no one unless he comes in through the covenant of Moses, unless they come under the burden of law, as measured first by your willingness to have your eyebrows waxed. So, so they are really concerned. So what they've done is now they've sent people up here north. And actually, the Bible says they go down. So that's because of elevation. So they go down from Jerusalem, down to Antioch, and probably come to these churches too. And what do they try to do there? They try to reverse the work. They're trying to reverse what Paul has laid down. They're saying, wait, you, you, you guys thought you could just march into the kingdom of God? Whoa, stop right there. You will come in through this gate labeled law. And then you can come in. 
And so they started reversing everything that Paul had taught them, which was that you are welcomed by the free grace of God. Imagine how livid Paul must have been, that they were coming again under a, a yoke, a burden. And, and, and so that is probably the occasion of him writing Galatians. Now, there's different theories about when he wrote Galatians, but I speculate and I side with those who believe that he wrote it from Antioch after delegations were sent from Jerusalem to reverse the work both in Antioch and in Lystra and Derbe and the Pisidian Antioch and all those places. And he writes to the Galatians, which is the list of cities that he had traveled to last week, and he says, why have you brought yourselves back under a yoke of slavery? I think that's why he writes Galatians. And among the people who come up from Jerusalem to Antioch to check it out is Peter. Peter comes up. Galatians chapter 2, we read that Cephas, that's one of his nicknames, he comes up from down, from Jerusalem down to Antioch. And at first, Peter looks at you guys getting together, a bunch of former pagans and idolaters and now fears of God and followers of Messiah, and you guys who are messianic and, and Jewish to the core are getting together and you're eating together, and Peter's like, this is awesome, because don't forget, Peter was the one who saw God save the household of Cornelius, the very first Gentile to become a Christian. So Peter's going, this is what's come of the thing that God did. He opened up the door to Gentiles. He's excited, and he sits at the same table, and they eat the same food, and they love the same Savior, and it's really super cool. And then some of the other cats come up from Jerusalem, some of the Judaizers, some of the sticklers. And they're sticklers because they are adamant that you must come to Jesus through law. And what does Peter do? It's not a very flattering picture, friends. In Galatians chapter 2, Paul tells us that he, he said, uh, when the Judaizers came, said, well, yeah, I, was, I had been eating with these guys, but that's probably a bad idea. So you guys go over there, and we'll huddle over here, God's special people. And Paul recognized the hypocrisy and criticized him to his face, and that is part of what is all taking place in Acts chapter 15, verse 1. Certain individuals came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, unless you are circumcised, unless you follow the customs taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. And that's probably that whole conflict in Galatians 2 is part of that sharp dispute and debate. So what do they do? Do they take up sticks and clubs? No. They, they appeal to authority. So they go down to up, sorry, elevation. They go up to Jerusalem. They go up to Jerusalem to meet with the now 10 disciples. Remember Judas, dead. And um, James, the brother of John. Remember the sons of thunder? He's dead. So that James is gone. So now there's only 10 left. So the 10 disciples plus Barnabas, uh, Paul, uh, Silas, a couple of the heavy hitters in the early church. They're all there at the council. And they get together and they say, they discuss this question. Can you imagine? It was probably a, a noisy room, just like we had it here today. And they were debating and back and forth and back and forth. And finally, Peter stands up and says, brothers, do you remember? I mean, I didn't want to. I didn't want to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. But there was God and he gave me that vision. And remember the vision? It was a vision of, of all these kinds of animals, clean animals and unclean animals. You know, they weren't allowed to eat, of course, pork and, you know, vultures and all. All these animals. And they're on a big sheet. And in his vision, the animals come down and a voice is heard that says, take up and eat. Take up and eat. And Peter, in the vision, is aghast and horrified. And he says, no, Lord, I have never eaten anything unclean. But the voice says, 
do not declare unclean what God has made clean. And with that miraculous intervention, the Jews who were reticent to go anywhere near Gentiles suddenly realized that God was calling a people of his very own from, well, my ancestors, my ancestors, ancestors and yours if you're not of Jewish descent here today. That God was calling a people of his very own, that he was flinging the doors open wide. And that we must not put a burden of law over those who are turning to God. And so that's exactly what he says in his speech. In his speech, he gets up and says, we must not put a burden, verse 10 of chapter 15. The law is a burden. I mean, you guys, you Jews, you know, there's 256 requirements. There's 256 regulations in, in the law of Moses. Have you been able to carry it? You, 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 anybody here? No, no, you haven't been able to carry that burden, and this is precisely the point. No one can be justified by law-keeping because no one can do it. Can you do it, all you Jewish believers? Can you guys get it done? Could you follow every commandment, every regulation, every ordinance in Moses? Could you do it? No. So Peter says, if we couldn't do it, why are we making these guys do it? They can't do it. It must be by grace, through faith, or not at all. So James, who is now James, the brother of Jesus, not James, the brother of John, and he, by the way, turns, you remember, he doesn't believe in Jesus during his ministry. What could have changed James's opinion about Jesus? Only the resurrection. So here's James now, gets up and agrees with Peter and says, yes, we must not put this burden on them. Verse 11 of chapter 15, um, he says, instead, we should write to them, telling them, to abstain from food polluted by idols, uh, from the meat strangled by animals and from blood. And other than that, they will be, uh, it is by uh, grace. It is my judgment that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles. So they write them a letter and they say, listen, you do not have to come under the burden of the ordinances of Moses, but three things we want you to still do. And you say, wait a minute, are they repudiating the very grace principle that they're affirming in the same letter? No. Why are they giving them three of the ceremonial commandments to still obey? Why are you, we're asking you, remember you guys are the Gentiles. Why are we asking you to still do the food laws? No food with, uh, no meat with blood still in it, no, 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 no unclean animals. Why are we asking for that? No meat sacrificed idols. Health is actually not the reason. The reason would be for fellowship. Because Christians have to eat together. And if you have a bunch of people over here who can't touch, whoa, I just knocked over the Acropolis. Wow. It's something that 3,000 years of history and erosion hasn't been able to do. I've accomplished in five seconds. So, uh, so uh, no, it would be, health is certainly a reason probably why God gives those commands. Because God is interested in our health. But in the, in the case of the early church, the issue is fellowship. Because these people... You guys can't even eat with these guys if they're eating unclean foods or food sacrificed idols. If, they're, if you're feeling like you're touching idols every time you sit down for a burger with these guys. So to facilitate the fellowship in the early church, they're asking an accommodation and in a spirit of deference and love, which is, by the way, exemplified in Romans chapter 14 and 15, where Paul talks about weaker and stronger brothers and how they should get together and defer to one another in that spirit of grace and fellowship and love and self-sacrifice, the churches get together. So this letter now can be shared with everybody. 
And they can take this letter that says, no, you Gentiles do not have to come under the burden of Moses in order to be saved because you are saved by the grace of Jesus or not at all. That letter then goes to Antioch and they're excited to say, let's take it on the, let's take it on the road. So they do. It now becomes the impetus for them to go on a second missionary journey. So they leave from home base, which is a Syrian Antioch over there. And they send the letter and they, talk to, they tell the letter to all the believers here. Paul takes Silas, Barnabas takes John Mark and goes back to his island, home island of Cyprus. And so they're making their way through the interior. And it looks to all the world, they're probably going to make their way to Ephesus. Why? Because Ephesus, like we said, is one of the three biggest cities in the Roman Empire. It's a center. And from that center, if they can win that center, it'll just radiate out into all of Turkey. You got Rome, you got Ephesus, you got Antioch. But you know what? They get about right here. They get close to Mysia, which is another one of the uh, um, provinces in this area. And the Bible says that the Spirit prohibited them from going into Asia. Now, Asia, you think Asia is this stuff up here, right? Russia, Mongolia, and China, and that whole thing. That's not Asia to the Roman mind. To the Roman mind, this is Asia. It's, the whole thing's called Asia Minor, which is to say it lives under the Asian continent. But this was a province of Asia right here. And the Bible says, strangely, the Holy Spirit prohibited us from going into Asia. What does that look like? What does it look like when the Holy Spirit prohibits you from doing something? Have you ever felt that? Some of you have been following Jesus for a long time. What does it look like when the Holy Spirit prohibits you from doing something? Sometimes you have a plan and you're pursuing it with energy and gusto and you just get one stoppage after another. Just nope, nope, nope. We don't know, maybe that's what happened. Maybe they tried and made, to make passage in the weather and prohibited them. Maybe someone got sick when they launched out uh, west towards Ephesus. We don't know. We just know that the Holy Spirit prohibited them. So what are you going to do? Well, they said, well, the, Turkey was their, their, their place, right? This was like the world for them. And uh, Paul, what we said, was from that area over there. So they said, well, let's, let's, go, let's go east. We can't go west. Let's go east. So they went this way. And they were ready to take the gospel in this direction, and the Holy Spirit said no. And you say, well, how, how did that happen? I mean, what, what was, the, you know, was, was a mountain pass closed when they wanted to take it? Was there a tornado, a hurricane? We don't know. But what we know is that then they felt pinched. They felt continuously pinched, like down a funnel towards this city, Troas. If you can't go west and you can't go east, where are you going to go? going to go north. So they land in Troas. And just a little parenthetical comment here, friends. Some of you get pinched by God. And it's a deeply troubling moment for you. But I just want you to imagine that God has something for you at the end of that funnel. You went this way, God said no. You went this way, God said no. He prohibited you by circumstances, by an impression from the Holy Spirit on the inside, from godly counsel, which you sought when you were making a big decision. You thought, I should do this. And all of a sudden, your godly counsel said, that's, no, that's probably not a good idea. When you consulted the scriptures, the Holy Spirit can guide you in all sorts of ways, friends. But whatever, sometimes it will feel like he's funneling you and stopping you. He stops you here, stops you here, stops you here, and finally pinches you down. And I just want to say this. When God pinches you down, if this is not too cliche for you, he will open up something at the bottom of the funnel. And that's what happens here in Troas. In Troas, they're there for I don't know how long, maybe a couple of weeks, and they're just sitting there wondering what God's going to do. And sometimes we have to get to the end of ourselves. Friends, sometimes you have to get to the end of your options and your best wisdom and just sit still, and God will take you to the next place. 
And in Troas, Paul has a dream. He has a dream of a man from Macedonia. How do we know he's from Macedonia? Is he dressed like a man? I, I don't, the Bible doesn't say. You know how sometimes you know things in dreams that you know, aren't explained? Just, that guy that talked to me, he was from Macedonia. <laughs> so there's a guy from Macedonia in the dream of Paul, and the man says, come up here and help us. And from there they surmise that the gospel must go into Europe. Now, think about the seminal moment in world history, friends. The gospel goes this way. And from here, it has gone counterclockwise around the world. It went from here to Europe, spread into the New World, North America, South America. The missionary enterprises of the 16th, 17th century brought it here. And it continues now to press through into Asia. And there's even organizations now that call, they're called, I can't remember the name. They talk about the gospel coming home. It's coming home again. Eh, we'll leave that. There's so much to say about that. But here it is now springing into Europe by God's providential design. So as it comes into Europe, um, they, um, they now, we now pick up the we passages. And now they go to Philippi, and you have that whole thing about the slave girl, and she gets exercised, and she becomes part of the church, and Lydia becomes part of the church, and a jailer becomes part of the church. And there's an extensive dialogue about Philippi more than any other city. And then we leave the we passages and go back to the they passages. What does that tell you? Luke's not there. What that tells you is that the we passages pick up here and the we passages end here that they picked up Luke and Troas and they dropped him off in Philippi. And here's what's interesting is uh, when we get to the last week of the series, they come back in the third missionary journey through Philippi and all of a sudden what starts again? The we passages, they pick up Luke again in Philippi, probably his hometown. And he's a physician who runs his practice there. And so um, there in Philippi, we hear about how he's uh, beaten and brought into the, um, uh, the prison. Then he goes to Thessalonica and the same thing. And you saw that pattern repeat itself in the drama. And that was humorously but accurately portrayed. Everywhere they went, they went first to the Jew as a sort of doctrinal imperative. They felt like salvation was from the Jews. It was, right? Salvation was from the Jews, so it needs to go to the Jews first. They need to have first crack at it, as it were. So everywhere they go, they go to the synagogues first. So they go to Philippi, then they go to Thessalonica, and here they get run out of town. Now, what's interesting about Thessalonica is the Bible says that Paul, um, uh, he reasoned, explained, and proved that Jesus was the Christ. What that tells me is that when you and I are engaging with people who are far from God, people who have rejected the Christian faith, they, we must engage their minds along with their hearts. Sometimes, and I'm speaking now to people who are part of an evangelical tradition where it's almost always all about the heart. Man, do you feel the peace? Do you feel the inner peace of God? And all that's legitimate. It totally is legitimate because God comes to bring these benefits to our hearts. But here's Paul. Remember when he got saved in Damascus? It was a dramatic, supernatural, emotional encounter with God, a sort of once-in-a-lifetime thing. So when he's talking at Thessalonica, saying Jesus is the Christ, and they say, no, he's not. Maybe if, if he, all he ever did was have sort of a know-nothing faith that was built entirely on emotion, he would say, oh, yeah, well, you got pretty good reason. So uh, just wait around, and maybe God will like, give you a real cool feeling in your spirit. And then you'll know that Jesus is the Christ. That's not what he does. 
even though maybe he could do that because did he not have the most amazing encounter with God through the Holy Spirit and, and Jesus appears to him? Maybe he could have just said, look, uh, I can't explain this to you. It's so wild and amazing. It's beyond reason. It's beyond intellect. And therefore, just accept the emotional thing and God will come to you if you just want him to. He doesn't do that. He reasoned, explains, and proves, which means we must engage the mind of the person who's investigating faith as well as their heart. We must be able to address their reticence in coming to faith. We must be able to have an argument. And I'm not saying everybody has to be a Rhodes Scholar and some people are going to be uniquely wired for this, but listen, friends, we need to have, Peter says, a reason for the hope that is within us. In an increasingly skeptical age, we just have to at least be uh, conversant with the skepticism that your seeking friend brings to their investigation of Christianity. And with compassion, be able to engage those ideas. And if you have never heard their criticisms, it's like brand new to you and maybe that upsets you a little bit, listen, dive into it. That's what William Ramsey did. He dove into it and found there are reasons. There are reasons. And so Paul gives reasons, but they don't want to hear it intellectually closed off. So he goes to Berea. That's this town right here. And the Bible says that the Bereans were of more noble character because they're more intellectually honest. Paul shows up and says, Jesus is the Christ. And instead of going, la, 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 that's not right. That can't be right. You're changing our whole way we look at the temple. And you're changing the way we look at the law. No, I don't, I don't accept it. Instead of doing that, that whole eyes closed, ears closed, mind closed, the Bereans go, really, seriously, Jesus of Nazareth fits the messianic blueprint? Are you serious? And they investigated. And they searched, and they researched the passages, and they looked and said, Isaiah 53, that looks an awful lot like Jesus of Nazareth. And they looked at Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? My hands and my feet are pierced. All my bones are out of joint. This, this looks to all the world like a crucifixion. And it was written a thousand years. And the Bereans, the noble Bereans, realized, yes, Jesus is the Christ. Based on just the Old Testament, our own scripture, he fits the messianic thumbprint. And they turned their lives over. But the cats from Thessalonica chased them out. They were kind of interested in maintaining the purity of Judaism, and so they chased him out of the synagogue there, so he goes to Athens. And in Athens, we have this amazing engaged speech that he gives to a bunch of philosophers, and we've taken a lot of interesting cues from his speech in Athens as a church. You know why? Because when he looks at those Athenians who are idol worshipers, they're pagans, and he talks to them about Jesus Christ. He doesn't begin with Genesis. He doesn't begin with the prophets. He actually starts with their starting points. And he looks inside their pagan mind for that general revelation, that, that, that kind of revealing that God does to everybody in all countries, at all times, in all places. You don't have to be a Christian or a Jew to have some truth given to you. Do you believe that? Paul believed that down to his marrow. Romans chapter 1, he said, God is revealing himself through creation. Romans chapter 2, God is revealing himself through conscience. So he, he took those assumptions with him into Athens. This is the Parthenon, up on the top of the Acropolis, which means the high city. And just below that is another hill called Mars Hill, where they debated these ideas. And he, in that speech, begins to turn them from idols to the one true God by saying, you guys, you worship so many idols. You've actually got one here in your, in your little pantheon of gods. You've got an idol to the unknown God. Well, listen, this God that you worship as unknown, I'm going to introduce you to him today because he's the God 
above all gods. He is the creator God. He is the first cause of the universe that you and I live in. And so because he is that God, he is your God as well as my God. And let me tell you what he's done in history. This God sent Jesus, his own son, and he has appointed a day when he will judge the earth and he is calling everyone to his side by grace. And so he gives this beautiful, awesome speech, engaging the culture. And so we learn from that, friends, that the gospel is a kind of transcendent principle that stands over culture. And there are parts to culture, like speech, some language, dress, music. These are styles that are... Uh, various and diverse, and if we get caught up and think that the gospel is tied to those things, it's tied to a certain kind of dress, or it's tied to a certain way of speaking, or it's tied to a certain kind of music, then we run into massive problems when we're trying to do mission work. And the most successful missionaries around the world today and in the first century are those who could accommodate the culture to this point, to realize that God can speak a message into a culture, and he has prepared that culture for the gospel. If the gospel is true, that's a pretty good assumption, right? If the gospel is true, it's a pretty good assumption that God is preparing cultures. Now, some of the most fascinating thing you can do is read the biographies of missionaries who will tell you that when they went to the dark jungles of Irian Jaya, or they went to unreached peoples in Africa, where I'm standing right here, they found in uncanny ways the culture had been prepared for their arrival, and in so doing, in Athens. From Athens, he goes to Corinth, and we'll end here. After Corinth, he goes home, and then he begins the third missionary journey almost immediately. In Corinth, you can imagine he's maybe close to deadbeat. Why? Now, he's been rejected in Philippi, Thessalonica. They chase him out of Berea. All these places, he's been beaten. He's been in prison. He's He's been persecuted place after place after place. And, and, and I loved how Roger depicted it. I mean, literally, I can imagine him coming into Corinth exhausted. And you know what? There's biblical precedent for the way it was described because he says, 1 Corinthians 9.22, when he writes a letter to this church later in his ministry, he says, you know, I came to you, uh, I came to you in weakness and fear with much trembling. I just kind of wonder if in Corinth he's ready to, to quit, or maybe just um, uh, he wonders whether there's the, the mission is going to be at all successful. When he's at this moment of despondency, and maybe you found yourself there, friend, Jesus speaks again. And if you've got two lessons out of today, I hope it's this. The grace is for everyone, and it doesn't matter where they've been, or their background, or their culture, or their language, okay? That's the first message. The second is this, is that if you're an ambassador of this message, you're going to be pinched, and you're going to be persecuted, and you're going to come to places where it looks like God's abandoned you, and you're going to come with weakness, and fear, and trembling, and wonder if you're of any use in this mission at all. And I declare to you on the authority of the Word of God, and my own experience, that it's going to be in those moments of despair, that God will reach out to you. He is our 11th hour God, friends, and he will call to you in that moment to comfort you. And here are the words that he gives to Paul in a dream when he feels on the verge of despair. Jesus says, this is now uh, Acts chapter 18, verse uh, 9. Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one is going to attack and harm you here because I have many people in this city. I want you to hear this, friends. 
that when you're feeling pinched by the circumstances of life, it doesn't mean that God has abandoned you. When you are feeling beat up and bedraggled, yes, even persecuted, when you're feeling like for the very reason of being faithful to Jesus, that your life is not going well, listen, the message of Jesus is, do not be afraid. I am with you. And I'm going to use you. I'm going to use you. Do not be afraid. I am with you. Can you receive that promise here today? If you can, then, friend, you can move on from this moment, no matter what your circumstances are, and you can accept this idea that you, yes, you, were called to this life to be an ambassador. And resistance does not mean failure. Resistance doesn't mean he's not with you. Do you understand that? Resistance and persecution and suffering and sickness, it doesn't mean he's not with you. He's with you. Do not be afraid. I have much work for you to do right here. Now let me pray and bless you. Father, I bless this group of people here, many of whom have, like me, followed the Lord Jesus Christ into this new kingdom, a kingdom of grace where it didn't matter what came before. All of our junk, all of our sin, all that stuff we had in our past has been washed away and it was by grace and not by works. It wasn't because we could be good enough and work our way up. And we were so thrilled by that. We thought that yes, you, even you, the God of the universe could use us by your power to affect change in people's lives, to explain grace in a way that would bring the change that we've experienced to their lives. And God, that has brought for many people in this room hardship and trouble. And they've wondered where your guidance is and they've wondered where are you speaking and why aren't you near and And Lord, I pray that they would hear in this moment again the promise that you gave and breathed into the life of Paul. Fear not, I am with you. I have much work for you to do. And so I pray that we would take that up and persevere because we follow a one who suffered greatly on our behalf. And in so doing, we get to share in those sufferings. And in so doing, also share in his life. And this is a precious gift beyond anything that we could compare I pray in Jesus' name, amen.